freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Pal Shaw, and I'm here with Roxana Espaz, Bill Ayers, Lydai Lee, and Bernadine Dorn, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Our poem today is a song by David Robix, an intrepid supporter of press freedom. You can watch the song's video on the webpage for this week's episode at underthetreepod.com. The video is of Rovix as he circles the Belmarsh prison, raising his voice against war, the suppression of the truth, and the cruel treatment of the truth-tellers. The first sound you will hear is David Rovix's footsteps along a concrete path as he approaches the prison. Here is Behind These Prison Walls. prison walls there's a man who's won awards for the work that he has done and all that it affords such as the knowledge of the harbors committed in our name they can't stop the message so the messenger gets blamed Behind these prison walls, in solitary confinement, in a land of rolling hills and royalty, and other such refinement, is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere, who help them tell the world of the crimes of Tony Blair. Behind these prison walls, you will find... I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Gostola, author of Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Um, he's an author, a journalist, a student, a teacher, um, and an all-around uh, brilliant guy who focuses on whistleblowers and dissenters. So it's great to have you here, Kevin. It's great to talk with you. Thank you. I, I wanted to start because you've written a, a kind of a very important primer on the Julian Assange case, and it is a critical case um, for all of us. And I guess I'd like to start by just asking you to go back to the beginning. It's been a long, long time that Julian Assange has been um, persecuted, prosecuted, uh, held in prisons. And um, I'd like you to go back to the beginning and give us the timeline of the Julian Assange affair. Yeah, and you can always go back earlier, it seems. You know, I, I, you've had many discussions about history. Often 
one of the disagreements is where do you begin? I'll go ahead for this conversation. I don't always, but I'll go ahead and say that it's about 2007, 2006 that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is thinking of founding an organization called WikiLeaks and comes up with this concept that was revolutionary as it fits into journalism. The idea was if we obtain documents, they should go up on a website so that the entire world can benefit from them. And you can read them and people may take this for granted, but typically in the business of news media, when you get a story, a scoop, someone comes to you, a whistleblower or someone with a a source as an insider in a government agency, they give you uh, material. They give you material that's private. They keep it within the New York Times. They keep it within the Washington Post or the Chicago Tribune. And you never read it unless they decide to post the document along with their article. Sometimes documents have been published. Parts of the Pentagon Papers were published in the media. But oftentimes, you don't get to read the source material. Julian Assange and the people of WikiLeaks decided that they should have something called scientific journalism. And scientific journalism would be that the entire public can have this as a resource on a website. And then... You can have archivists, you can have historians, academics, journalists like myself. This is where I come into it. Around 2010, I'm going through college. I just graduated and I am engaged in activism against the Iraq war. But I also find that it's very easy to grab these documents that have been published from WikiLeaks in 2010. Uh, We know a little bit about who might be behind them, but not really. And as we head into 2011, we start to learn more about the fact that they come from U.S. Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning, who is a a hero in her own right. Uh, But uh, these materials that are being posted, particularly U.S. diplomatic cables that come from the State Department, from December 2010 through to the middle of 2011, we have constant publications of materials about countries around the world and the way that the United States wields its power. And we learn things that are relevant. Like right now, I think, and we may raise them during our conversation a little bit, but I constantly am thinking of what we learn about Gaza, what we learn about the Israeli government and the way that we, the U.S. government makes policy against uh, Palestinians or allows policies against Palestinians. But I'm seeing these cables published and I'm realizing that not every newspaper is picking up these diplomatic cables and turning them into stories. So I was able, as an independent journalist, to do stories in Latin America, on on, on Mexico, on parts of the African continent, all over the world to um, describe human rights abuses, things that were happening with the Bush administration, um, going against anybody who would investigate the CIA's torture program. There were all sorts of scoops that came from these cables. Along with that, WikiLeaks also got their hands on military incident reports that came from Afghanistan war and the Iraq war. And in each country, you had similar revelations. But basically, In Iraq, the biggest headline was that there were now 15,000 additional civilian deaths that could be confirmed thanks to the Iraq war logs. There there was documentation of an order that existed 
among the generals to make sure that the Iraq security forces or the police that they worked with were ignored if torture reports were shared with the U.S. military. And those forces were deputized to interrogate and detain Iraqis who were seen as insurgents or, you know, as we know from our history of the left and everything, subversives, people who were not tolerant of the occupation, those people could be rounded up. And in fact, there's a real world example with Chelsea Manning that was not published by WikiLeaks. And this is one of the few things that WikiLeaks did not find a way to curate and publish, but she said so in her statement to the court when she had her court martial that she observed uh, that there was this individual that they wanted to detain who had put out some anti-Iraqi literature and she was asked to translate it. And she comes to find out that uh, there wasn't anything wrong with it. This person was not a terrorist. They were just somebody who had taken a line against the current regime that was in power in Iraq. And the U.S. was sending forces out to go detain people like this individual. And so she wanted to have WikiLeaks uh, publish this story and expose the way that the U.S. military was rounding people up in Iraq. They didn't know how to disseminate it, so they passed on this material. But she published, she, she provides this. She also provides, and we're around the anniversary of this atrocity that continues to keep existing in Cuba. She publishes nearly 800 files on the detainees that are at Guantanamo Bay. And there are now 22 prisoners that continue to be held. Many of them are called forever war prisoners in the eyes of the human rights community. Uh, and these are people who, for whatever reason, uh, many of them have not been charged with a crime. There's no way to actually bring them to trial. Uh, the U.S. military just refuses to release them from Guantanamo Bay. So we learn about those individuals thanks to WikiLeaks. We learn the false intelligence. We learn how, uh, and journalist Andy Worthington does some fantastic work from the United Kingdom uh, and documents the different lies that are in these intelligence files and how it basically goes back to a handful of people in Guantanamo Bay who are keeping all of these individuals in Guantanamo, just helping the U.S. military justify their treatment and their indefinite military detention. Uh, so I want to speed up here because you know we want to get to a lot of different things well, in our conversation. Let me interrupt for one moment. You were a young journalist. You found WikiLeaks. You discovered uh, the value of it. Where were you publishing your own articles? It was just an independent news website. I mentioned it in my book. Uh, I linked up with an uh, individual in Philadelphia. His name was Rob Call, and he had a website called opednews.com. This was in the early phases of the internet when there were a lot of things that were possible that I don't think are possible today uh, in the sense that you could start your own website, you could bring people in, you could collaborate. Uh, there were people, there was a community there that was reading and finding my work. They were excited to read a young journalist and see that somebody was engaging with the issues that was my age. Um, so it was an older audience that responded favorably to what I was putting out there. They were a, a, a democratic or progressive audience that I found uh, you know, they were open to activism against the Iraq war, just like me. I was tuned in to 
being appalled by the uh, torture program that the CIA had and the military had to some smaller degree. And we were following the war on terrorism and violations against civil liberties from that standpoint. And I was writing all my articles about that. Along comes WikiLeaks and I'm able to pair it and put out regular reporting. Um, and then at a certain point in this, as WikiLeaks are, is publishing this material, I was lucky enough to get some newsroom experience at The Nation magazine. I spent six months in New York City actually seeing how a newsroom functions. But I was fortunate before things had completely shifted to get experience as an online journalist, because that's really how everything is done now. You don't really work on a magazine or you don't sit in a newsroom all day. A lot of everything is on an electronic website now. So there I was able to follow all of these events that were happening and work with uh, a distinguished person who had done some great work, Greg Mitchell. And he's done some fantastic documentary work on the atomic bomb in, in, in 1945. And, um, investigating the way that, you know, we've been propagandized about how the atomic bomb was dropped. And he, he took me up and, and encouraged me to write and put out articles on all of these materials. And so these revelations, things that I discovered were different from what the New York Times and the Washington Post were saying were important stories. They were different from what The Guardian even was saying were important stories. I'd find things with Columbia that involved trade unionists that were being murdered and stuff like that, that I thought were remarkable and, and stories that we needed to share. Uh, uh, of course, I remember The Nation did the important story while I was there with a publication in Haiti. I think it's called Haiti Liberté. Um, I'm butchering it a little bit because I believe it's in French. And uh, this was with a journalist who uh, publicized the fact that the U.S. was suppressing the minimum wage in Haiti to keep it below a couple dollars for those who were working as uh, garment workers, I think. So all these stories. And then, of course, Chelsea Manning's arrested. And it became clear to me that if I was going to benefit from publishing these materials, that I had to follow the source. I had to care about what was happening to the source now because what she had done had given me a personal benefit as a journalist. I was not going to be in the position that I was if these materials weren't out there for me to write stories. My knowledge was improved thanks to Chelsea Manning and the risk that she took within the US military to share over 750,000 files with the world. And so now, I followed the court martial. I went to Fort Meade in Maryland. Uh, I had a website that I worked for. It was it had a kind of an awkward, weird name, but it was called Fire Dog Lake. And it was a really good website that had distinguished itself also by covering something else that was a scandal that involved, uh, I, I'm not here to take sides necessarily. Um, it was a internal battle among the intelligence agencies, but uh, Valerie Plame was exposed in a leak by, uh, uh, we believe, Dick Cheney. And uh, they, they, anyways, they distinguished their website by following the daily court proceedings of this Plame leak scandal. Um, and uh, I stepped in and did court coverage from Fort Meade as uh, the court martial was unfolding. There were many, many hearings and people ended up enjoying that work. And then from there, I expanded to the general war on whistleblowers that we saw from Barack Obama. And I think this is part of the history I included in my book because 
what you see with Julian Assange's case is that it's the nat natural endpoint. That's well, not really an endpoint. It's never an endpoint when you're thinking about power. But this is a part of a progression, uh, a, a way that cases have continued to creep further and further towards targeting journalists. And now they do. You know, people who were lawyers for the whistleblowers always said the war on whistleblowers is a war on journalism. It's not going to be long before they come after the people who are being handed the materials and are publishing them. And in fact, they're prosecuting the whistleblowers because they want those sources to be afraid of giving the materials to journalists so that we can't learn the truth about corruption in government. And so journalists shouldn't always be so quick to differentiate themselves, to say, oh, okay, well, it's bad for the government to come after us as journalists, but the whistleblowers did something wrong. They should have protected national security and kept that classified information protected, and they should have never revealed it to the public, and they committed a crime, and they should go to prison. Which... Isn't it true that national security and classified documents have kind of gone crazy? Isn't Aren't there more classified documents than, uh, you know, there are stars in the sky. I mean, I, I think everything is classified, right? I mean, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, you, can, you can retroactively, it's it's very much theater of the absurd and, and nobody knows what's classified or unclassified. It's impossible to keep a grasp on it. Uh, anybody could be leaking. The people who are in high positions of power leak all the time and they feed stories to the press. We call that propaganda. But the people who are lower level who object and speak to the press then who are in less of a position to defend themselves because they can't pay the attorneys that they need to represent them against the government. Uh, they're the ones that are vulnerable. Those are the people who are the most impacted. And, and, and maybe we'll gloss over a few of their names over the course of this conversation. But this war on whistleblowers, I saw, you know, uh, there's an individual named Thomas Drake. He had challenged NSA surveillance. I'm friends with someone named John Kiriakou. He was a CIA whistleblower. His claim to fame is going on ABC News and saying very clearly as the first person in a government position that waterboarding was torture and that the Bush administration was engaged in it. And up until that point, you weren't allowed to say that. Um, and he was the first person to put his name to that idea. He doesn't say he was anti-torture. It took him a while to come around to it. I mean, he was working for the CIA, but um, he went through an evolution and decided that he wanted to be a voice against the CIA's torture program. Yeah, John uh, has become a really uh, uh, a real apostate. I mean, John is really anti-CIA today. Yes. But it yes. took him a minute and, and uh, he was charged. But of course... Uh, the admiral who was in charge of the CIA wasn't charged, right? I mean, exactly. astonishing. Nobody involved in the torture program has ever been charged. John's claim to fame forever and ever will be he was the only official in the CIA to ever be prosecuted for torture. Of course, we're talking about a leak about torture. He leaked the names of people who were involved in the torture and rendition program. So, and the guy they say he exposed, he was prosecuted under the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which is a law different from the Espionage Act that Julian Assange is charged under. But they're going after him very similar to John, because basically when they 
single out files that they say Julian Assange was wrong to release. They're suggesting very clearly that there were names in the files and those people were exposed to harm. And so they should not have been published. Uh, so it's similar to John. And that, that person apparently was actually retired in Virginia. Everyone knew where he was living. And but this is how the U.S. government goes about targeting people. So this war on whistleblowers uh, is ramped up under President Barack Obama. And that is his legacy. His legacy is, as the great Daniel Ellsberg put it, many, many times when he did his interviews, that President Obama had prosecuted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all previous presidents combined. And then this machinery, as I documented, I, I, I covered all the aspects of Barack Obama's effort to refine the system of secrecy that existed in government in order to you know, go after and stop the flow of information he hated leaks, but so do all presidents. But the difference was that he allowed the Justice Department to make these cases against people who were exposing parts of these programs that were used in the global war on terrorism, as they called it. And then President Donald Trump comes in and he makes no secret, does not hide how eager he would be to go after people and hang them, basically, and, and put them out in the public and drag them and go after them for leaks. He's saying so on his Twitter page and all the machinery that's there from Obama, Donald Trump is able to use. But he, importantly, it's not Trump really that gets the credit for this prosecution, although he's complicit. The persons, the persons who get the credit in the Trump administration are Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general, who makes the decision ultimately to revive a case that was not closed entirely. And I think that is something that we should hold Attorney General Eric Holder responsible. That is a failure. He should have made an announcement that this had ended. But Attorney General Jeff Sessions restarts the case against Julian Assange, picks up this grand jury investigation that began in 2010 and continues it and tries to find a way to bring Julian Assange uh, to an indictment. to and, and right now, there's a bit of history I've missed, which is that Julian Assange entered the embassy in 2012 after he was accused of these sexual allegations. He believes, based on his attorney, another very revered and renowned human rights attorney, Michael Ratner, at the Center for Constitutional Rights, advises him that if you allow this extradition to Sweden to happen, you know, no matter what's going on with this case, no matter the, the valid questions in it, or no matter your alleged conduct, Sweden's going to just turn, turn you over to the United States so you can be prosecuted for the materials that you have published. So, so you, say he, you say he entered the embassy. After. Yeah, but what embassy? Where? Yeah, yeah. So the Ecuador embassy in London, he enters the Ecuador embassy after this has become pretty advanced. It becomes clear that Julian is not going to probably win um, or, or get anywhere close to uh, due process or fair justice in this as, as a defendant. Um, I mean, it's clear as, as, as we can get into that there are improprieties in the way that the Swedish prosecutors are handling this case against him. So he goes into the Ecuador embassy and Rafael Correa, who is the left-wing president of Ecuador, 
and has uh, had at least one interview with Julian Assange that was recorded. Uh, he uh, takes Julian Assange in and grants him asylum, political asylum in the Ecuador embassy where he lives until April of 2019. And the thinking of the Assange people is, I have to go, I have to hide from the authorities, not because I don't want to go to Sweden, but going to Sweden means automatically being sent to the United States. That was Ratner's idea, yes. advice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the it. advice. And I would say that it's been proven to be correct by what we saw happen. Uh, and so he is in the embassy living there. And while he is there, uh, they, they, Stella and Julian Assange. Stella is Julian Assange's wife, um, who he meets while he's living in the embassy. Uh, you know, they form a relationship. He decides to have children. They believe that Obama is going to move on from all of this. And because Obama has moved on from all of this, then it's not likely that Trump is going to revive this, even though Jeff Sessions has said something about prosecuting Julian Assange. Donald Trump is talking about the files from the Clinton campaign during the 2016 election. So it appears that things might be okay in 2017 and they decide that they're going to start a family. And meanwhile, not only is Jeff Sessions revamping this war on WikiLeaks, but so too is Mike Pompeo, CIA director, who I think is an even more nefarious figure in all of this. And there are different angles that we can go in to uh, approach this story. But the most important thing to say to everybody is that Mike Pompeo comes out in his first speech as CIA director and singles out a media organization, WikiLeaks, as a non-state hostile intelligence service. And what he is saying to the world now is that, uh, that the CIA has gone to war against a media organization. They have decided to come up with a label that will justify their actions behind the scenes where they will go and target Julian Assange. Uh, there's eventually a story done by Yahoo News in 2021 that confirms from over 30 sources within the Trump administration and other parts of the U.S. government that there were plans sketched out to kidnap or poison Julian Assange while he was in the embassy. There's evidence from whistleblowers within a private security company, a Spanish private security company called UC Global, that uh, this company was backed by US intelligence or American intelligence friends. Who are those people? Those people turn out to be the CIA. The director, David Morales, has a folder on his laptop that is marked CIA. So he is collaborating with US intelligence to target and a diplomatic embassy in London, and everyone who goes to the Ecuador embassy, who meets with Julian Assange, uh, journalists, attorneys, any visitors, activists from all over the world, anybody who comes to see Julian Assange, goes through a security checkpoint and has to give over their belongings, their passports, and all of that. And this company is making dossiers or uh, putting together reports that are being sent back to the United States to be shared with the CIA and probably the FBI and other intelligence agencies. And those files are also including uh, documents uh, that describe conversations they had with Julian Assange. Uh, there are microphones that are planted all over the embassy, so it's bugged pretty well. 
Julian Assange suspe- suspects this, so he inc- he is said to have advised his attorneys that they should meet in the women's bathroom. As it turns out, we come to learn the women's bathroom is bugged as well with microphones. So this is what he's dealing with. He uses a white noise machine to try and get around the surveillance. And what do they do? They put labels, they put stickers on these windows that will curb the vibrations of the windows so they can still spy on Julian Assange inside of the embassy. All right. So in 2019, April of 2019, that's now more than four and a half years ago. It's actually, we're coming up on five years now. It won't be long before it's April. It's closer to April now. And so it'll be five years in April that Julian Assange has been in the Belmarsh High Security Prison. It's Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh. Uh, or now it's His Majesty's because we have Prince Charles in this monarchy in London. And as a backdrop, we have seen that the UK has become more harsh to whistleblowers. They're passing laws that are that would they're they're deliberating and considering laws that'll make it harder for people to challenge national security policies in the UK. They're passing laws against protest in the UK. They're doing all of these things to crack down at the same time that this client state of the United States is working to ensure that Julian Assange would be extradited to the U.S. on 17 charges under the Espionage Act, uh, one of, and then one more charge that involves an alleged computer crime. But you it's know, an important. He, yeah, he, uh, as I understand it, he has his next hearing is February 20th, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. and tell us about that hearing. What is what judge does he go for, and what is the hearing about? This is an important hearing because up to this moment, Julian Assange and his legal team has not had a chance to go before a court and argue that it was wrong that his extradition was authorized. It's been a little bit topsy-turvy, so to speak, because the U.S. actually lost earlier in this case. It was unexpected. It was a welcome surprise for Julian Assange and his legal team, but perhaps it's a little bit of a mixed blessing because In 2021, in January, uh, Judge Vanessa Baretzer saw the evidence and recognized and agreed that it would be oppressive for mental health reasons to extradite Julian Assange to the United States because in detention or imprisoned, he would likely try to take his life. And they didn't believe that the U.S. government would be able to prevent him from killing himself. And in fact, one of the examples that has been in the news recently that was referenced by Baretzer was the fact that Jeffrey Epstein successfully killed himself in a prison um, before uh, all was said and done. You know, so uh, how can you guarantee that Julian Assange would not uh, would actually survive in a U.S. facility? So she uh, handed the U.S. government a loss and they had to go to an appeals court. Now, what did they do? Well, they are savvy. So the State De- Department goes outside of the courts, talks to the foreign office in Britain and tells them that these are some assurances we can make about how we will treat Julian Assange. It has nothing to do with the case at hand, has nothing to do with whether we should or should not extradite Julian Assange. But we can tell you that we would let Julian Assange have access to mental health care in a facility. 
we would make sure that Julian Assange had a chance to apply to serve his prison sentence in Australia. He's an Australian citizen. We haven't gotten to this point, but I need to make it clear to everyone who's listening to us that an Australian is being asked to follow a U.S. law, and that is a completely ridiculous notion that anybody outside of the United States would ever be expected to follow U.S. law, and that the U.S. thinks it can enforce its laws upon people who are not from this country. I mean, nobody would ever let China do that to anybody. Nobody would ever let Russia do that to anybody. Nobody would let any of the most repressive countries, uh, where Turkey, Israel, whatever, no one would let them enforce their laws against other people. This is what the U.S. is doing to Julian Assange. So uh, they now have a first chance to argue before a appeals court that Julian Assange should not be extradited to the United States. It's a final opportunity to try and save Julian Assange through this legal system. I really am not sure that it is going to succeed. Uh, That is why supporters and activists are already very prepared here to to, uh, come out and assemble and mobilize after that day. It's, It's believed that after this hearing, if there's a ruling against him, they will, the U.S. and the U.K. will get together and extradite him pretty immediately so that he cannot go to the European Court of Human Rights and make his case while still being in the United Kingdom. And the last thing I'll say is that is a very fair concern, that suspicion, given that the European Court of Human Rights has sometimes been willing to take up issues that you can't get a single U.S. court to pay any attention. I mean, this court the European Court of Human Rights was one of the few places that the CIA had any any modicum of accountability uh, that, that they had to deal with. Uh, Khaled al-Masri, who's a supporter of Julian Assange, who testified in his extradition trial, which was a remarkable thing to, to see uh, or hear to read his statement. Uh, he was going to speak to the court and then suddenly, oh no, we don't have internet connection. And uh, I wonder why that was. But uh, he is someone who was abducted by the CIA, kidnapped, and he was tortured in a CIA black site. And his experience was horrendous. But uh, there was a diplomatic cable that showed that the U.S. government had been pressuring uh, Germany to make sure that the prosecutors there did not investigate the CIA and hold them accountable. So the justice he was denied, he decided he was going to support WikiLeaks and Julian Assange for the fact that this cable helped him bring his case to the European Court of Human Rights. So this is why the U.S. government does not want the European Court of Human Rights to hear a case about how they're going to put a journalist on trial in the United States. Right. And and this February 20th date is important. I know several people who are going to be assembling in London, rallying in London, but they're also going to be a webinar that's going to be a 24-hour conversation about the case. And we're hoping to bring uh, pressure on the U.S. Congress uh, and inform the U.S. citizenry, which is so why I'm so glad you were able to talk to us before this date. Um, I think one of the things that people can do, and not only make themselves aware of this, but to write to their congresspeople. And there's a bill, I think it's called H.R. 934. Do you know about that that bill? Yeah. 
So let me go ahead and say that one thing people can do, and I, I think this is something that we have to do as supporters of uh, Julian Assange, uh, people who recognize the threat to not only freedom of the press, but freedom of expression, if you're going to be allowed to go forward and put Julian Assange on trial. We need to make a political issue out of it in this country. We haven't successfully done that. I think that's something that uh, every now and then I try to reflect on a little bit more. You know, why haven't we been able to do what people in Australia have been able to do? Um, and they, well, he's an Australian, so they have that advantage when it comes to making it a political issue. But even in Europe, Germany, France, Spain, those countries, they're, they're parliamentarians, they're elected lawmakers are more tuned in to this case than the people in Congress. Uh, the people in Congress who come from the government or who are part of the legislative branch of the government that is trying to pursue this uh, and, and make this trial happen at some point. Uh, and so the only thing that we can do, one of the biggest things that I think, and not the only, but one of the things that we need to do is confront continuously the people in Congress who are either willfully ignorant or just flat out not paying attention to this. And this bill is one thing that it's a, it's a, it's a small door that is swung open because Jim McGovern, who is a Democrat and Thomas Massey, who is a Republican got together and, and passed this. And it's a very basic resolution. Unfortunately, it won't change anything, but it is an important thing that if the sense of, if, if it's passed, it would say the sense of Congress is that, the First Amendment with the freedom of the press is important principle for us to defend. And if that is the truth, then Julian Assange needs to be set free and the Justice Department should abandon its effort to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. And it's that basic. And do you know how many folks have signed on to it? So Sadly, far? only eight at this moment. That's why okay. we need the kind of demands coming from people who say, you know, tune into this. Um, and I say Democrat or Republican, go get them. Because right now, six out of eight of those signed on are Republicans. And I think that just speaks to the horrid dynamic that we have in this system in the United States, which I was all too familiar with under Barack Obama. I mean, one of the things I wrote about early in Obama's career as president and, and as a as someone in the White House who needed to be pressured, I challenged the idea from progressives that we needed to give Obama a chance. That's all we kept hearing as activists. Give him a chance. Oh, it's hard. There's Republicans. It's going to be difficult. Well, but look at what he's doing. Look, look at what actual policies he's supporting. None of this is because Republicans have tied his hands behind his back and said, hey, you don't have a choice. You have to do this. I mean, there were a few things. I will tell you that the Republicans made it extraordinarily difficult for him to close Guantanamo prison. They basically sabotaged that entire endeavor. But aside from that, there were things related to war making and Afghanistan and all sorts of other domestic issues. Uh, that he was responsible for, environmentally, climate change. And we see it in the WikiLeaks cables and the Warlog documents that were disclosed. And so now with a president in power that is a Democrat, and we're now in an election year, and you're familiar with this as much as anyone, having been in tune to activism and politics for decades, that people say, oh, we got to be careful about what we do. It might 
end up that we elect Donald Trump if we aren't careful. And I think that in my estimation, it doesn't really make a difference. Um, unfortunately for Julian Assange, there is no difference between Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It just doesn't make a difference. And I don't know if it ever did before 2016 when Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were running against each other, but that's the past. What I can say in the present is that I'm confident that uh, Donald Trump has no interest in saving Julian Assange because it would mean saying that he was wrong um, and that he failed when he was president. Um, and Joe Biden has no interest in abandoning this case. Uh, and the people who represent him are questioned by reporters at the White House or at the State Department, and they refuse to answer questions. So they think that they should not be held accountable and they should not have to answer to anyone for doing this. So the challenge to us is then to keep confronting them and refusing to take their non-answers as the acceptable response. Exactly. I think the, I think you're right. I think the way you frame it uh, in terms of willfully ignorant or just clueless uh, is important. And either way, our responsibility, and I think you're doing such an important uh, job in this, our, our responsibility is education, mobilization, and keeping the issue alive, all the issues alive. And it can feel overwhelming. But I think what you've done is a, is a tremendous service. I do believe, and, and this is something we can talk about on another occasion, but I think that elections do make a difference. And what I argue with young people all the time is, um, of course, we're voting for the lesser of two evils because they're lesser. Um, but voting only takes five minutes. It's the other 364 days that you have to be a political person. You have to be aware. You have to educate. You have to organize. You have to mobilize. And here's a situation which is coming to a head. And H.R. 934, we should all be writing our representatives and demanding that they sign on to H.R. 934. Uh, as you say, uh, Kevin, it's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a free speech issue. It's a right to know issue. I don't know, for me, and I, I'm sure you feel this way too, I mean, there's a reason that Israel is not allowing reporters into Gaza. There's a, there's a reason that we know nothing from the ground um, and we're relying on kind of sketchy you know, impressions here and there. And when a journalist does go in, that journalist goes in in, a, in an Israeli uh, jeep, you know, a military jeep. So you cannot rely on it. And what you're doing, I think, is really the important work of saying, let's dig beneath and let's really educate ourselves. So I, I mean, so we can do two things, really. One is we can continue to educate and mobilize our neighborhoods, our communities. And second, we can approach people about H.R. 934 and make sure that they sign on to it. It's outrageous that there are six Republicans and two Democrats who are standing up for basically free speech and free expression and the right to know. What could be more basic uh, in a, even a putative democracy than the right to know stuff? And it takes courageous people like yourself to get us to know. I guess I'd like to, I, there's two other things I'd like to just touch on. Maybe you could, you've said it really beautifully, but maybe you could say as succinctly as possible, why should we care about Julian Assange? I mean, we have a short attention span in the United States. I often call us the United States of amnesia. Uh, we forget things very quickly. Why should we care about Julian Assange? Well, I say in my book at, towards the end that 
we are all capable of journalism. You know, you never know when you might want to engage in journalism. And this is something that, you know, I'm always careful about how much I reference the Constitution because, you know, our legacy of slavery and, you know, every, the history is replete with its contradictions and its injustices and everything. That being said, we do have this document that tells us that in the First Amendment, it protects freedom of the press. It's one of the only things that are considered institutions in this country that have been preserved, allegedly speaking, and typically press freedom advocates reference this. And it's something that we have that the United Kingdom does not have is that this is supposed to be something that is preserved and that anyone can be a journalist. There are people who claim to be professional journalists. They take that label, but anybody at any given time can be a journalist. It's a little bit awkward to call people citizen journalists because citizens are always capable of engaging in the publication of information and distributing it and sharing it with people all throughout history, whether it's been through zines or newspapers or whatever on any given issue or for their organization or cause or whatever they're doing, they would be able to engage in this act. They did not have to go to J school or go through some kind of university or college to do this and have some kind of measurable impact. And so at any moment, you might be able to obtain something that the U.S. government doesn't want to be out there to have published. You might obtain something that these social media platforms that have tremendous power don't want you to share with the public. You might be able to provide some kind of knowledge to people that the uh, government says you know what? It's worth putting a prosecutor on that and investigating you. It's worth having an FBI agent come knock at your door and harass you because you decided to publish this. And the only thing that deters the government from being able to go forward down this path where they criminalize journalists in the way that we're seeing Israel, frankly, criminalize journalists today in their own country and in Gaza and West Bank. And even killing, even killing yeah, And journalists. killing and going way yeah. before that. But there yeah. are, beneath the deaths, there are also these political cases that are now happening that are overshadowed by the brutality of the Israeli military. And that's just as important. And well, so, you know, let, me, let, me, let me jump in just for one minute. I, I love this idea that any citizen at any moment could be a journalist. I love that idea. And certification isn't what makes you a journalist. Um, so I love that. Um, I, 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 my whole life, I'm a teacher, an educator, and I've always said something similar. Every citizen can be an educator. Every citizen, you don't need a certificate to be part of. And and so I like the 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 notion. The awkwardness of citizen journalists might be there, but I like the idea that journalists, educators, organizers, activists, citizens, residents, we are all people who deserve to know, deserve have the right to know, have the right to speak about what we know. And I think, you know, I think I, I, you're a Chicagoan, we're Chicagoans. Um, I think of Jamie Calvin uh, yeah. at the Invisible Institute as a phenomenal example of a journalist who labored in the trenches for decades. And only uh, when the Laquan McDonald case broke, uh, was he recognized with the George Polk Award and many other things. So I really look to people like Jamie and like yourself, who are doing you know, kind of God's work, if you will, um, but not always recognized, but always important. And, and I think that's true. And and so any and 
earlier in this conversation, you asked me about classified information, how there's so many. And you know, there are 5 million or more, might even be 6 or 7 million now, who have security clearances, who get to read this information that we don't access. And there are actually people who, you know, you may be surprised to learn or your friends, colleagues, or your family or are in their networks. And what if they have a crisis of conscience one day and they turn to you and say, I can't publish this, but why don't you go ahead and put this up and, you know, share this on Twitter, put this on Facebook or email this to some of your people. Or I hear you've got a newsletter. You've been following this stuff. Put this out there. And maybe they're not savvy and they don't know what journalists to go to and they're not sure who to give this, but somehow they want to put this up on a message board on the internet. Well, they would actually be committing a crime or you might, you actually, by putting that out there, could be committing a crime, especially if the government says you're not a journalist. That's what they're doing to Julian Assange. He has every step of the way engaged in common news gathering activities, but they've made it seem like he's done something else. They've created a debate. And unfortunately, there are a few press freedom organizations that have fallen prey to this discussion that they should not be having about whether Julian Assange is a journalist or not. Um, and I think it has made it difficult and harder for Julian Assange to defend himself in public. And uh, it concedes a little bit of ground. Uh, the United States wants us to view Julian Assange as a hacker and not a journalist, somebody who ran a kind of criminal enterprise through WikiLeaks where he was trying to steal documents from the U.S. government. And by doing that, uh, it makes it harder for us to do this work. And so I just clearly say that Julian Assange is a journalist. Um, and I don't even I'll entertain the discussion. I mean, those were the first words that I wrote in my book, because I do think it's so important to lay down a marker that this is not up for debate. And I also think we needed to reframe it because for so very long, those in power, what we had been told was that Julian Assange was a hacker, or that he was some kind of like, and you're familiar with these labels too, of like, he's an anarchist who is just out to stir up chaos in the government. Um, and, and this is just the way that they've always gone after people who are involved in trying to change anything that is of any importance. Um, yeah. You know, let me add one thing. I mean, I, I think, and why why it's important for us. Um, and again, it's a, it's a comparison with my life as as a teacher, my whole life as a teacher, which is that when they go after people like Julian Assange or they go after Susan Sontag or they go after, um, uh, you know, Edward Said, those people certainly suffer the slings and arrows. Certainly Julian has su suffered more than enough. On the other hand, the other result of it is some teacher in Kansas, some person who has a piece of information just says, Really, is it worth it? I mean, if they can do this to Edward Said or to Susan Sontag or to Julian Assange, what chance do I have? And I think it leads to a whole bunch of, you know, self-censorship and self-denial and kind of getting caught up in the idea that it's not worth it. And I think if winning for Julian Assange is winning for all of us to be able to be freer and and more um, more thoughtful and more energetic. And very quickly on what you're saying, it, it will not stay with Julian Assange as the one who is targeted. They already 
uh, the FBI raided a, a journalist named Timothy Burke in Florida last year. Um, and they said he committed, uh, possibly committed a crime um, because he collected a live stream from Fox News that had not been protected. They had not done anything to keep the unedited live stream from being searched by people on the internet. And so he grabbed it and he was able to show that Tucker Carlson had cut out clips from a Kanye West interview that were anti-Semitic. And it basically sanitized this interview for his audience so that Kanye West looked more of a, of a refined figure. And he now has his equipment seized. He's trying to get his hard drives and stuff back. And his whole home newsroom setup has been disrupted. And they're still investigating and haven't said if they're going to charge him with a crime. Last year, in the Plains states out in the Midwest of the U.S., it was in uh, uh, Kansas, I believe, uh, there was a community newspaper that had their newsroom raided by police and they came after them simply because that newspaper was investigating um, some alleged corruption. And the person who had been the longtime owner, she was like 97, 98, she died because she was traumatized by the raid. And the point that I'm making here is that it's in the rural areas of the U.S. and other parts of the U.S. United States, um, we are seeing that police and government officials are less inclined to allow this journalism to happen. You know, there are people who are getting documents from records requests that are called freedom of information requests, and they'll, they'll look at them and, and oh, wait, we made a mistake giving them to you. You're not supposed to publish them. Give them back. And then when the journalists fight, they say, oh, we're going to charge you with a crime. So it's not just Julian Assange that we're protecting. We're trying to protect things that are part of our human rights to have access to this knowledge. Kevin Gastola, thank you so much, not only for the work you do, but uh, but for being with us for an hour. And everyone should check out the book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, Kevin's most recent book. Uh, very important, very useful, very educational. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a force for truth-telling. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.